I'm Abby Kenny, and you're listening to UpZone. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, an urban planner at Gould Evans in Kansas City, and joined with me today is Kevin Klinkenberg, Executive Director of Midtown KC Now, a leading community partner working to advance economic development and community progress in Kansas City's Midtown. He was formerly the executive director of the Development and Renewal Authority in Savannah, Georgia as well. Thanks for joining me today, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Abby. Pleasure to be back. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your perspective on today's article, given your expertise in urban design and background working with local businesses. Today's article was published by the Washington Post and written by Tim Carman, entitled Outdoor Dining Has Helped Restaurants Avoid Disaster, But Winter Is Coming. The article follows the experience of restaurant owners across the country who have adapted their business models in support of outside seating to encourage social distancing through the spring, summer, and fall seasons. Now winter is coming and restaurants are rethinking their approach. This is a predicament that restaurant owners have been anticipating for months, frankly, and according to the National Restaurant Association survey, 40% of restaurant owners do not expect their business to survive the winter. And without support stimulus, the industry is expecting a mass extinction event. Some local governments are proactively administering grant funding to support investment in tents, heaters, and other elements that would make outside dining more feasible this winter. Chicago, for example, is working with designers to develop tactical approaches for winter months, in addition to a cultural campaign calling on residents to essentially suck it up and embrace their frozen landscape. However, some local restaurants are nixing the outdoor approach altogether and instead focusing on increasing revenue in other ways. This includes offering family-sized take-home meals, online cooking classes, pop-up stores, retail offerings. One business owner in the article decided to invest in ways to actually support cleaner air in the ventilation systems. So Kevin, I'm glad to talk to you about this article because you work consistently with local businesses. What conversations have you been having in Kansas City, and are you anticipating that businesses will be able to fully embrace outside seating in winter months? Well, thanks, Abby. It's a a tough conversation right now. There's a lot of, obviously, a ton of challenges and uh, a lot of mixed messages from people. Some folks have adapted very, very well, and, and others have not, and we've already lost some people in the industry, as probably every city has. As I read the article, there are a couple things, you know, I think stepping back, it's important in today's kind of media landscape to really try to filter out the fact from the fiction as much as we can, because uh, it seems like we live in a time where the way most journalism works is that uh, somebody like a writer takes a position and then tries to find a couple of anecdotes and a piece of data to support it and then adds kind of a clickbaity headline as a way to get traction. And that's not to say there aren't real issues that because there are, it's become harder and harder to figure out what is true. And so I would just start off by saying on the author's assumption, 
sort of questioning a little bit of, of what's going on. First thing I would say is, you know, half the country, winter is actually the best time of year for eating outside. And, you know, the southern half of the country, it's actually the most pleasurable time to sit outdoors and eat. And so it's not the same dynamic in the south as it is in the north. And that people are different and their ability to adapt to, to colder environments is dramatically different. You know, for example, where our friend Chuck lives in Minnesota or, you know, places like Wisconsin or Maine or Canada, I think honestly, people are a lot tougher and used to cold weather and will probably adapt uh, just fine. But then there are other places that are not going to be fine. And, you know, in the city where we live here in Kansas City and a lot of northern cities, there are some real legitimate concerns about how these businesses can adapt to um, severe restrictions on their ability to, to serve customers, combined with the, the fear that's prevalent about uh, COVID. We are very concerned. We have another restaurant that we lost recently. I've talked to some other people who uh, feel like they have been able to patch it together and just hang on through all this, but they're deeply concerned about their ability to survive a reduced level of business in the winter. So it's a huge issue. I would just say one other thing on the positive side is, um, you know, in this industry, especially in the restaurant industry, in the food and beverage industry, there is a ton of innovation and just incredibly adaptable people. And I think we've already seen a lot of people adapt in ways that have been fantastic. There are just really creative people in this world that will figure it out. I am certainly concerned we're going to lose more businesses that, that just can't survive a, a 50% or 70% reduction in their business. I have been very encouraged by the creativity that we've seen in the summer and fall months throughout this pandemic, despite the immense challenges that people are facing. We're seeing that restaurants are shifting their business models and we're seeing more outside seating areas where before we had on-street parking and parking lots. Really, the tactical urbanism movement has been a hero this year. But when I read this, I also think about my time working in the restaurant industry and how difficult that business can be, even in normal times. The restaurant industry in general is pretty volatile and profit margins are typically very slim and winters are quite tough for business owners and employees. Servers, for example, make their money based on tips. So when business is pretty seasonal anyway, that results in financially difficult winters. So when you add this layer of coronavirus pandemic and fears associated with that on top of an already unpredictable business, it doesn't surprise me that restaurant owners would opt to try alternative revenue models to try to stay alive this winter or are just closing down altogether. Public campaigns encouraging people to embrace the cold and design competitions to support outside dining this winter are creative approaches coming from local governments and and I'm very excited about that, but I kind of wonder, is that enough to make business owners feel confident when it's their livelihood that's on the line, especially in places that have severely limited indoor dining capacity and kind of a culture of you know unwillingness to embrace the cold? When I read this article, I did immediately think of some of my conversations I've had with Chuck where you know he he lives in a place where culturally they embrace the winter, they go outside, and I've kind of become the type of person who really doesn't like to be cold, and I'm kind of looking myself in the mirror and telling myself that I'm going to have to suck it up and put a hat on and layer up um, if I want to go do anything this winter. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think we're all going to experience that a lot more. And, uh, you know, this year has been interesting because it's forced a lot of us to do more things uh, outdoors than than we probably would have uh, in a normal year, which is good and really good. But there are tons of challenges. I share all of your concerns. I think one of the one of the things that we've seen also is while a lot of businesses have adapted over the course of this year, they've done so at much lower staffing levels than what they had before. There were a lot of places that might have been more of a sit-down place that have figured out a way to survive, but they might have half or less of the staffing. That's a real issue and concern to think about. And I think the some of the perverse effect of all of this is that uh, a lot of the sort of national chains and fast food places are the ones that have really thrived and are getting through it. And it's really a lot of the local places, mom and pop places that have really struggled. Six months ago, what I was most concerned about were really all of the the sort of fine dining places or, or anything that really is built around people dining indoors. I don't know how they survive. A lot of them have hung on. And I think you know, as the winter comes around, it's going to be tougher and, and, and tougher for them. So th- those are all serious concerns. I don't see a ton of easy solutions for a lot of those places. Uh, I think uh, in the article, the obviously one of the, my favorite uh, suggestions was the idea from Chicago where, you know, this, the marketing campaign for people to just suck it up uh, and get outside. But uh, that's a real culture change for people who aren't used to it. Well, The article also describes the possibility of this mass extinction event for the restaurant industry if a stimulus is not offered soon. And, you know, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts about is a stimulus package something that you have your eyes on? Is Is it something that you're really kind of focusing on as as something that restaurants need in the district that you're working in? I mean, Strong Town's really focuses on the concept of subsidiarity, meaning that solving problems at the most local and decentralized scale possible is going to lead to the best outcomes. I think about this framing when I consider how unreliable the federal government has been with the regard of stimulus support for these businesses, and everyone just kind of has to do what they can. And I'm, I'm curious if, if that's something that you all have been kind of holding out for. Well, I wouldn't say we've been holding out for it. We have, throughout all of this, tried to do everything we could to connect businesses with resources. And whether that was a, a federal resource or a, or a local one, there's been a, a, a lot of great philanthropy during this year that we've seen. I think there was probably an expectation on the part of many people that we'd see additional federal stimulus already, uh, which has not materialized. I don't know that many people at this point are really uh, planning on that. Uh, We're certainly not planning uh, on additional federal help for anything that we do or or the support that we're given. It becomes a bit of a catch-22 with all that too, because uh, the federal support, if it comes or or when it comes, it it might help, it it might not. It might be too late for some. Um, But there's also the question of, we don't really know, you know, I think from the bigger picture, we don't know what other consequences there are to just stimulus bill after stimulus bill and increasing amounts of federal debt. And uh, something I worry about quite a bit just uh, from the longer term perspective is, you know, how much, how much debt can we sustain and for how long? Because at some point that debt has to be dealt with and it's usually dealt with in, in very unpleasant ways. 
And so uh, I feel like there's really no good answers or good positions right now for, for any of us. But I would say in general, most people I know are not really waiting on a federal solution and they're trying to figure everything they can figure out today. And we're trying to do what we can to figure out how to help. Yeah, I think that that has been kind of a, a delicate balancing act of how much do you rely on federal stimulus support for in the next you know, several months versus what, what can be done locally, what can be done tactically to try to keep people afloat right now. You know, in the long term, I, I've been thinking a lot about, and we've had this discussion before, just about the structure of business districts in general. Like many mid to large size cities, Kansas City has a pretty competitive restaurant scene, and we have a lot of unique places to dine, and locals really aren't the only base of people who are supporting all of these businesses. Kansas City's tax base, and I sus- suspect the restaurant industry as well, relies heavily on tourism and commuters. And from my own observations during the first few months of the pandemic, it became very clear to me how important it is to have a strong local base of customers and for local businesses and business districts to not over rely on tourism or commuters for survival. And it's been my observation that business districts with immediate housing density in their core and surrounded and well-connected by neighborhoods have been much more active than districts that were more focused on commuters or tourism as a primary customer base. And although there's absolutely an argument for attracting tourism and commuters, in my mind, a local customer base provides stability first and then tourism and commuters provide growth second. So we really led with growth before stability in many urban business districts. And that's something that I really think that we ought to reconsider moving forward. We're fortunate, you know, in the districts that we manage, uh, you know, you would tend to call our area sort of downtown adjacent. We are not the core of, of downtown. These are mostly, you know, neighborhoods that are pretty well populated with a strong residential base that's existed for, for many decades. So a fair amount of what we have really is neighborhood serving, although there are a couple of smaller, uh, sort of more entertainment-oriented districts. Uh, so I think that has helped uh, a lot of our districts in, in Midtown Kansas City in general by uh, having that really strong residential base to support us. So I think uh, as we look towards the future, I could certainly see a scenario where um, the more commuter-oriented or tourist-oriented places really have difficult times to deal with. And it's entirely possible we could see a shift back towards more neighborhood-serving businesses in a lot of those locations. But we could also have an extended period that is very difficult for those places with a lot of commercial vacancies if, uh, if our current makeup of businesses can't succeed. There are a lot of ramifications to all this that are just so uh, hard to predict and, and under, even really understand right now. And there's been so much stimulus that has come in to prop up businesses this year, uh, along with really an unprecedented level of restrictions on uh, what businesses can do, that it just makes it very difficult to have a sense of how this shakes out in three months or six months or, or even a year from now. And despite how challenging this year has been so far, the acts of resilience that 
I've seen in my own community and online across the country are really commendable. And it's just been a very incredibly stressful year for everyone. And people are doing what they can and trying to be helpful to one another. When it comes to small business owners, the opportunity to work together with other businesses can, I think, really make a big difference. And I'm sure it certainly helps to have some kind of local business association working on your behalf in times like these. Yeah. And again, in an unfortunate way, this has been a year that has really highlighted the work that a lot of uh, business improvement districts and community improvement districts like ours do and how we're able to really be nimble and work at the very, very local level, whether we're talking about business disruption uh, or being able to help solve problems uh, in specific areas or even, you know, dealing with civil unrest and, and issues of policing. You know, it's been interesting. You know, in that regard, this week has, was actually the annual conference of the International Downtown Association, which uh, has a lot of organizations like ours that are members. And it was it was interesting to hear the conversation and the stories of, you know, what people are uh, have dealt with this year and how they've wrestled with them. But I think for the most part, it's really highlighted how these sort of hyper-local management organizations have done very, very well and been able to respond to the to their constituents and the people in their areas. And I and I hope that one thing that we can learn going forward is to really learn from that and how uh, how successful these bids and SIDs uh, are at solving problems, at getting things done for people, also at having a, a model for policing that is generally very popular and just really provide a lot of services that people enjoy and perhaps can spark a discussion about localizing government services uh, a lot more and decentralizing them a lot more versus what we've done uh, in the past. I think that that is an opportunity to really reframe not only local business ecosystems, but just our communities in general and how they operate. And I think uh, you and others working in business associations are doing really great work and I'm glad that uh, you took the time to speak with me today. We're running out of time, so we'll wrap up this conversation on that note. But before we conclude, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that has been captivating our attention this week. So, Kevin, I'm curious, have you been up to anything interesting lately? Well, yeah, you know, I've really been reading a lot this year, which has been really good for me. Uh, read a lot of a lot of books so far and a lot of other things. Uh, spent a lot of time with podcasts as well. But I, think I was going to give you two things. One, one that's a little more sobering and serious and one that's a little more lighthearted. But on the, on the serious side, uh, a friend of mine shared with me an article recently that uh, an author named Mark Manson wrote with a thought-provoking title, which is Why You Should Quit the News. It's actually a very long article that you know might take 20 or 30 minutes to read for for a lot of us but really goes into a ton of depth about the history of information and news media and the environment we're in today and why we should all approach it a lot more critically and um, you know if anybody has seen the movie the social dilemma there's a lot of similar themes about how uh, in this current information age we're very easily manipulated by by news and by information it's just an incredibly thought-provoking piece that really made me rethink my relationship with what I consume from a news standpoint and, and resonated. I'd really encourage anybody to read that. 
from a lighthearted standpoint, I'm reading a book right now. My that is uh, my brother's latest book. My brother Dean Klinkenberg, who is an author, and uh, he has written for years about the Mississippi River. He actually has a website called the Mississippi Valley Traveler. And and Abby, you'll be happy to know he lives in St. Louis. Shout out! He's written a number. Yeah, he's written a number of travel guides up and down the Mississippi. But he's also now on his third novel written around uh, a certain character. These are sort of mystery novels. And this one is called Letting Go in Lacrosse, uh, which is centered in Lacrosse, Wisconsin. And uh, so I've been enjoying reading Dean's uh, third novel. Well, that's really fascinating. I um, did not know you had a brother who was an author, so that's pretty cool. I did see the uh, documentary that you mentioned recently and It wasn't really a lot of new information for me, but it definitely put everything in perspective of, you know, everything that's going on with 2020. You know, I I have not had cable or I I don't have like official TV service, I guess you would call it. I've never had a subscription to like cable news or anything like that. So most of the news that I get is through social media and, you know, whatever I see on my feeds I haven't seen that article, but I think it, it it would be worth a read just because it does seem that things have become so overwhelming and and toxic. And in a lot of ways, I've kind of been thinking we're seeing kind of a dying industry take its last breath of like trying to get everybody's attention and, and doing kind of whatever it takes just to get captivate people's attention and get clicks and get the ad revenue. I don't know if that's exactly what's going on, but that's kind of what it seems like. There's a a lot of social contagion by social media going on uh, this year. And, uh, you know, it's crazy. And I I think one of the most valuable things from that article was just really the historical framework for how we go through these different periods in relation to information, whether they're either they tend to be controlled by a single or a small number of sources that appeal to a large amount of people or they become decentralized and like the era we're in now and and every era has its pluses and minuses but the problem of a decentralized era like we have now uh, is really that it's it's impossible to have a shared sense of what is true and what is not true every media outlet um, has to figure out a business plan and, and what their business plan tends to be is to find uh, a small niche and dominate that niche, you know, which were really uh, was something that started probably in the 90s and has really exploded in the last 10 or 15 years. And so it just really, it, it helps you really begin to question which news sources should you, should you invest in with your time and potentially even support financially. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. So I, I would, I recommend that for anybody. Yeah, the bubble effect has become very prevalent this year. And depending on who I'm talking to, it kind of seems like everybody in my life, they're all experiencing different versions of reality, (laughs) Um, which is kind of concerning. And and it makes you wonder, well, it kind of makes me feel like there's so much I don't understand and that I don't know. And it's in, in a way, it's kind of humbling I think even doing a show like this where I'm reading one article and digging into the subject and I, I really do try to be be honest in that approach and, and figure out what, what this subject is all about. And that takes a, a pretty good amount of time and often it, it, you know, these conversations kind of go beyond just what the article says and it's, 
it takes a lot of time to do that and and for people to have expectations to really dig into the subject matter of every single article that's thrown in your face is is not realistic nobody has time to do that so it's a predicament right and and predicaments have outcomes (laughs) so i've heard (laughs) yeah that's i've heard someone say that so I have more of a lighthearted down zone to share this week. I recently watched a documentary that I've been wanting to see for quite some time called Fantastic Fungi. It was directed by Louis Schwartzberg and is an incredibly fascinating narrative about the role that fungus has played in the regeneration of life on Earth for billions of years. It also follows a mycologist named Paul Stamets, who has uncovered groundbreaking innovations for how mushrooms can progress the field of neurology and psychology, as well as um, for use of cleaning up oil spills and improving immunity of the bee population. He's also found ways to um, use mushrooms to provide alternatives to insecticides um, and clean up soils. So it's really amazing all of the different inventions that he's, he's come to understand through his work and including uh, ways to protect humans from viruses like smallpox. Um, yeah. So it's, it's very cinematically beautiful and, and it shows time-lapse imagery of mushroom growth and animations of the mycelia networks that we often don't think about. And so I'm really looking forward to kind of following these different discoveries that Paul Stamets has been focusing on. I've I've seen his interviews before, and he has a really cool TED Talk on YouTube that's called Six Ways Mushrooms Can Save the World. That's that's really great as well. So I would recommend this documentary to anyone. That's very cool. Yeah, mushrooms are a great source of vitamin D, which is uh, one of the great ways to help your body resist any virus. So that's that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. We um, sometimes buy mushrooms to put into smoothies. So do you you go out and hunt mushrooms in the woods too? I do. Yeah. I I hunt morel mushrooms in the springtime. Um, I actually don't eat morel mushrooms. They kind of gross me out, but I really like hunting them. Um, (laughs) I I like going out in the woods. I like hunting. There's my dog. The male (laughs) must be here. I I love hunting morel mushrooms and I, I've kind of warmed up to putting mushrooms in certain dishes. My husband really oh. likes to cook, and so he he's really into cooking with mushrooms. And so if he minces them, it, I'll I'll eat it. So great. <laughs> it has to be minced. <laughs> good. That's good. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, I'd highly recommend it. You have to rent it. It's it, it's not just on Netflix, but um, you can find it uh, on Amazon. And so, yeah, highly recommend. Well, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Have a great weekend, Kevin. 